Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at the Antidote Festival in 2020. This is a special one. Queer Stories, as you probably know, is the legendary LGBTQI storytelling night, conceived of and hosted by Maeve Marsden, and it was exceptionally fun to hold the biggest ever Queer Stories event right here at the Opera House. You're about to hear an amazing collection of stories, from the funny to the profound to the seriously embarrassing. This is one to stay tuned to. Enjoy. friends. Nice to see you all. Hey! (laughs) I'd also like to acknowledge we meet today on the land of the Gadigal people of Eora Nation and pay respect to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back. I thought I'd make a quiet, subtle return to the stage. Um, This is the most on-time Queer Stories has ever started because we're following the Opera House rules. I'm told there's a long queue of latecomers still filtering in. So I'll try to fill a little so that by the time our first storyteller starts, we're all in the building. Oh, dear. It's honestly so great to be here with you all again. Um, I know that I probably should be bringing a little gravitas to the occasion. We're at the Opera House with a closing event for Antidote. Yeah, this is the biggest venue Queer Stories has ever been in. (laughs) Only took a pandemic to get us here. Um, Today's festival, Antidote, is a progressive ideas festival designed to challenge our worldview and expand our thinking. There's been an incredible lineup of international speakers, so the pressure on me for Gravitas is high but I feel like this year has well and truly murdered Gravitas. Anything I can say about the fragility of life or the importance of community or how beautiful it is to be here together as queers in a space like this, anything that I say like that right now is gonna sound like a mid-pandemic Telstra ad. You remember those, right? Like the corporations moved so fast to co-op our feelings. Like we just started to be like, oh, mutual aid's nice. And then Telstra was telling us about it. (laughs) And then corporations love to co-opt beautiful community endeavors. Don't they just ask Mardi Gras? (laughs) Ah, ah, ah. You thought just because I was going fancy, I wouldn't make mean jokes about Mardi Gras. It's like making jokes about my family, I'm allowed. Gravitas. (laughs) Oh dear, I grew up coming to this wonderful space, to this specific opera theatre. My big brother was in the children's opera chorus because we had lesbian mothers who were both massive nerds for classical music and very into encouraging us to excel in obscure ways. (laughs) Uh, My musical awakening was basically opera, lesbian protest songs and Dolly Parton. She's quite niche. Look, it, it worked for me. Um, I finally listened to Kaysan for the first time at university where everybody else was singing along to it. And I just stood in the pub like some kind of alien trying to work out what the straight culture was trying to tell me. <laughs> because my brother was in the chorus, we'd get cheap tickets to sit in these little boxes up there and we'd watch so much melodrama, so much beautiful operatic melodrama on this stage. 
I'm sure that's why I've ended up working in the arts, the hours spent here and the hours spent in the green room, sort of soaking in the hubbub of the comings and goings of all the costume makers. And it's funny being back there now because even though the Opera House is reopening, it still feels quite empty. But my nostalgia for this building and for what it's meant for my life is huge. So it really does mean a lot to me to be on this stage. Um, I actually think also watching opera made me gay. So, <laughs> so if you want your kids to be queer, opera, lesbian protest, Dolly Parton, you're good to go. You're good to go. We all want our kids to be queer, admit it. Um, so look, how are we going with all those latecomers? Should I fill some more? I could try to sing some opera. Nobody wants that. <laughs> Nobody wants that. That was not a direction I took. <laughs> um, it's been quite a year for nostalgia. Being here has impacted on me, but it's also now, it's the kind of thing where we can be nostalgic about February. You don't have to like look back to your childhood for memories, just like, oh, remember February. <laughs> I think for a lot of us, our last big queer gathering um, was in February, whether it was Kooky or Mardi Gras, or even some of you might have come to the last big queer stories in March that we held a giant dwarf. Thank you. Um, I know that throughout the times that we couldn't all be together, I wallowed in those memories and I remembered how beautiful it was for us all to be together. And even though it looks slightly different and frankly a little dystopian to have you all sort of spread out there like this, it still feels really good knowing I'm in a big old room of queers. So thank you for being here. Yeah, let's cheer ourselves. Fuck it, let's cheer ourselves. When in doubt, cheer. I did warn the performers. I was like, it's a very supportive audience. They own the event. They haven't been since March. <laughs> You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. So thank you. Thank you for being here and for being wonderful. I think that's enough of me, and I think we've got most of you in now. At least I hope we have. So let's get on with the stories. Wow, another cheer. <laughs> when in doubt. COVID safety also means that I get to have my own personal headset mic like I'm Madonna instead of the usual lectern mic. So I might be a bit more animated than usual and I might start singing Express Yourself, which is my favourite Madonna song. I won't. Okay, our first storyteller. Liv Hewson is frankly killing it. They didn't put that in their bio, this is me <laughs> uh, changing it up. But you may have seen them in Santa Clarita Diet, opposite Drew Barrymore, in Drama World, On Top of the Lake, in feature films Puzzle, Before I Fall, and Bombshell, just quietly with Margot Robbie, Charlize Theron, and Nicole Kidman. Back home, you might have seen them in the incredible web series Homecoming Queens, and there's just more coming. Yeah, this is, we're just clapping everything today. <laughs> And there's more coming. Liv splits their time between Los Angeles and Canberra, but thanks to a little pandemic, I could finally count on them being in Australia for queer stories. <laughs> Please make them very welcome. Liv Hewson. I don't like talking about myself that much. Um, it's hard for me to open up in an honest way. It'll usually happen when I'm drunk or overwhelmed by something else in like this sort of spiky wave of overshare that cuts through the whole vibe of the room. I'm always embarrassed to have done it. 
And then the next day is a cold shoulder in the face of my need to be reassured that that was fine, that that was a good idea, that I'm safe to speak about what's happened to me. So I'm sure you can imagine that deciding what to talk about today has been difficult. <laughs> I said to a friend, I'm trying to do it gracefully. And he told me that I didn't need to be graceful, that I am in fact not graceful most of the time. <laughs> and he's right. It's a losing game to play with yourself. Like, how can I talk about this without anyone knowing anything about me by the end? How can I build myself a house out of this story to lock myself inside after I'm done? How can I do this gracefully? I can't. It's my birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm 25. <laughs> Thank you. I never expected to be 25. I, even, I hate saying that and I hate that talking about myself in any kind of reflective capacity feels like heavy, like something I have to lug around with me, embarrassed to show people. And I've been asked to tell you something, so, so it's fine, like it's fine. It's fine. So I'm gonna tell myself some things out loud, and you can also listen to them. And uh, each number of thing is going to roughly correspond with the age I was at the time in the spirit of what day it is. And we're all gonna pretend that's a framing device and you have to be nice to me about it because it's my birthday. <laughs> One. Hello, baby. Far out, did you grow all those teeth by yourself? That's incredible. You don't understand a word I'm saying. Christ, okay, I'm skipping some of these. Six. <laughs> you are a scientist for leaving a piece of fish behind the speaker and not telling anyone. <laughs> the adults around you don't understand this, but I do. This was an experiment. You wanted to see what would happen to the fish if you left it behind the speaker for a week. That's fine. You wanted to watch it rot, but you knew that for some reason, this was something you had to do in secret. I have bad news for you about the amount of times this is going to end up being a metaphor. Nine. You are about to go on stage for the first time. You're also about to draw a mustache on yourself to do so. Pay attention to these things. You will never do anything else again. <laughs> 10. You have written kiss a girl on your bucket list. The bucket list is in your diary. No one else is going to see it. You're going to scribble it out so hard, the paper tears. The fact that you wanna crawl out of your skin all the time is gonna be politely tucked away to deal with in the nebulous later. This is a terrible idea. 13. In between filling out Am I Gay quizzes online, you managed to make time for the one about depression on the Beyond Blue website. <laughs> Result is grim, no surprises there. Your mom's not going to take you seriously about it. She will, years later, apologize for this. 
Don't hold it against her in the meantime. She doesn't know. 14. You haven't heard of gender dysphoria yet, but it's happening. You have heard of anorexia, but that won't stop it from happening either. 15. There isn't time to talk about all of it. There never will be. How do you hold it all at once? How do you talk about leaving school for months to live inside the recovery process? How do you talk about being taught how to use a knife and fork again? How do you talk about the muscle on the left side of your jaw that still clicks from the atrophy? How do you talk about the feeling of clinging to the skin of the world with your two front teeth? About the people you met? the egg timer for all of your meals, the rain falling again, your hair growing back, the bones in your feet realigning. How do you talk about what it's like to come back when no one wants to talk about it with you? How do you talk? 16, you are not old for your age. That's a lie. You shouldn't be at these parties and a 26-year-old woman should not be dating you. 17, Substance abuse at school stops feeling glamorous when the police show up. <laughs> Burning out and transferring does not feel like a coming-of-age film. It feels like shit. Every terrible thing that hasn't happened already is happening now. It is not the natural way of things. It is not what you deserve. You are not being cosmically punished. It will end. 18, you are now older than you ever expected to be. Every year, this is true again. We're record holders now. 19, there are people who incorrectly believe that life begins at conception. The truth is that life begins at 19. <laughs> it's not a false start this time. The woods are actually behind you. I know you don't believe that yet, only in hindsight can we pinpoint the exact time we made it out of danger. It's now, I promise. It's now. 20. So about now is the final time you try to double check whether or not you're a lesbian? <laughs> the male friend of yours that you sleep with for a bit is gonna be so, so nice about it. You're gonna bring two takeaway coffees to his house as a sort of consolation prize for the conversation you're about to have. And you're gonna sit on his bed, tell him you're a lesbian, and immediately burst into tears. He's gonna say beautiful, calming things to you about it, give you a hug, and take you back to the cafe you got the coffees from. You're going to eat eggs and keep being his friend. 21. Up until now, you've been so anxious about breaking US law and getting deported that you've had panic attacks at the thought of trying to get into a bar. Look me in the eyes, this is ridiculous. Americans get fake IDs at 18. No one in America enters a bar on US soil for the first time at 21 years of age, except you. Please go back to therapy. <laughs> 22. It's possible to be in a polyamorous relationship and still get cheated on. 
24. <laughs> For someone who says, I wanna rip my adolescence up and start again as often as you do, that's not actually the case. What you really mean is, I wanna rip my sexual development up and start again. And you know what, that's actually fair enough, but it's not possible. There is an upside. You have time. You've been told for years that sexual maturity is in the eye of the beholder, which was convenient because it allowed the beholder at the time to hurt you very badly. So how about this? Now the beholder is you. What do you feel like doing? I know nobody's really asked you that before. You don't have to have an answer now. You don't have to have an answer ever. 25. The people you love will never all be in a room together because there are too many of them. They live in too many different countries across time zones that will never line up completely. There will be no party you can invite them all to. They will never meet. It's not possible. Their lives are too different. Across too many planes of time, there isn't room for all that love anywhere in the world. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just the best thing you've ever heard? Isn't that what community is? limited by and as big as the whole world. And aren't you happy to be here? Happy birthday, sweetheart. Thank you. That was beautiful. Happy fucking birthday. Um, next up, Leonard Michelo is a Kalali and Bidjara man. He was with Bangara Dance Theatre for 12 years. He also performed in the musical Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, toured with the Sapphires as their choreographer and choreographed the musical Fangirls, which is coming back to Belvoir early next year and you really should see it if you haven't, it's brilliant. Leonard also performs drag as ceremony and was the runner-up of the 2019 Miss First Nation pageant. Leonard Michelo. <laughs> Hi, how are we? It feels very formal to kind of, like for me to be kind of standing behind this. Um, as a storyteller myself, um, I come from a lineage of um, a very old songline of um, storytelling, and that's um, First Nations storytelling. So um, I am a two-spirited being. I'm just gonna stand over here, because it's, it's making me a bit nervous. <laughs> um, but nervous is being, is, that's a good thing. Um, so I'm a two-spirited being, um, and my mobs are the Cullerly mob and the Bidra mob, which is up in central Queensland. Um, and after that, I myself would like to, I need to just, we're good. Um, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians on the land on which we're on this evening, which is the Gadigal mob, so I'd like to acknowledge all of them. And anyone that's Indigenous out there, I'd like to acknowledge you. And anyone who is not Indigenous, I'd like to acknowledge you as well. So, <laughs> um, so 
storytelling. Um, when I first got this offer, I was like, oh, what am I going to talk about? Because um, I guess as an artist, you know, um, it's quite serious. It's like, I'm an artist, you know, so... Um, <laughs> Like, even just hearing my introduction, I'm like, oh, I should be, like, walking out like this, you know? But I was like, I think today I'd like to take an opportunity of um, having the universe kind of know how I am just as a person, like, like this, um, kind of how I am backstage, which will link us to a story. Um, so I started dance when I was um, 10, um, and my mum always wanted to get me into Bangara. Um, I myself wanted to dance and do commercial dancing, but um, anyways, so blah, 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 get to about 18, audition for Bangara, get there, Stephen Page offers me a contract, and then he's like, so, would you like it? And I was like, nah, I'm going to go on a cruise ship. And, <laughs> and he was like, are you sure, son? I was like, yeah, I want to dance with you know, the mob band, you know, dance like Kylie and all that. And he's like, okay, fair enough. Um, he's like, just have a think about it. And I told mum, and she's like, no, you have to do it. It's going to be good. So, you know, and yeah, I, when I was little, I was always thinking, oh, you know, it'd be great to dance at the opera house. Um, you know, Bengara, we did lots of dancing um, at the opera house. We always had a season there. And... Um, one particular season, um, it's about eight years ago, um, <laughs> quite funny, um, <laughs> we did a show called Terrain, um, and that was Francis Rings' show, and um, it was a very interesting show. So my story um, is entitled Guna Happens. So um, <laughs> Guna um, for black mob means shit. <laughs> so can everybody say Guna? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyways, we're about halfway through the show, and we get to the, the section called Scar. <laughs> Bit of a double entendre there. But, um, yeah, scarred for life. Um, so I'm, like, side stage, about, you know, downstage over here. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to get some gas out. Oh, I'm off stage. And then I walk in like this, and, and as I'm, like, as I'm walking in, it just keeps going. And, like, you can't break character because with dancing, you, you, you have to keep going. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm shitting myself. <laughs> and anyway, <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're all coming together as a collective in the middle. And so the scene, it's called Scar. And so it's about, like, um, you know, just the earth kind of responding to mining. So it's about sickness. It's about, you know, toxic, you know, that kind of thing. So... I was like, well, I could look at this in a way of, like, this could really help me develop my character within this. <laughs> so we get to the center, and we're doing all, like, all this searching and everything, and, and Jasmine, and, and I think it was Dan was next to me, and they were just like, what is that smell? It's disgusting. <laughs> and I'm just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's pretty gross, isn't it? But yeah. And then... Dan, Dan, he reckon it kind of smells like chicken. Like, I don't know. So I'm like, okay, so they're spending more time about trying to like work out what kind of smell it is. <clears throat> um, where's my water? 
bit of water. Um, so, done all the slow stuff, and then we get to the fast section, and it's like boom, 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 like really, really fast music. And I think by seven, eight, um, we go to start, and I'm just like on seven, and I'm like, I shit myself, and then. Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> And <laughs> shit happens, okay? No. <laughs> I promise you there's not a moral to this story. No, no, no. <laughs> so, so we get, yeah, seven, eight happens, and then we get the fast one, two, three, four, five, and literally, like, all of the dancers are just like, oh my God, I can't believe he just shit himself. Like. <laughs> or you get the real serious dancers, and like, oh my God, I can't believe just did this, so unprofessional. <laughs> But for every um, life experience, there's like a life lesson. Um, I'm still learning what that lesson is, so. <laughs> um, and of all, of all years, um, it was actually a white tuckette. So tuckettes are like, you know, the things on the stage like, that you dance on. Um, usually, you know, we'd have like a black tuckette or something. Unfortunately, it was a white tuckette, so. <laughs> In my head, I'm like, okay, the worst thing has happened, but I'm sure there are you know, more worse things that could happen within the next three minutes. Um, and I'm talking about my story, no. Um, yeah, so there was a moment where uh, we're halfway through, and then we start doing these little cannons where it's like, one, uh, it's like, one, hold, two. And then others are like, one, hold, two. So like, one person would be here, and then I would just be like, like over at them, just to kind of egg them on, because they're like, look, we're really over this, can you just get off stage, because it really smells. Um, and also, I was like, oh, I'm just coming over here so you can see. Um, <laughs> so I was being cheeky, but then <clears throat> at the same time, I'm also like, oh my God, I hope it hasn't like, that shit hasn't gotten everywhere, or is, is, there, is there any on the stage? No. I was like, oh, there's a bit of, oh no, that's just brown paint, because... We wrote a lot of paint in the shows as well, so lucky that um, none of it got on the ground. Um, so I, was, I felt very supported because um, I was actually wearing pants that were like these. Every other pant that we would wear would just be like, you know, like a support. So, oh my God, can you imagine if it was a support? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we were a bit, they were a bit scarred for that. But, um, so we finished the show, um, and then I went upstairs, had a quick shower, Come back down, had the feature duo with Deb. Um, shout out to Deb Brown. Um, and, and this section was called Reflect, like reflection. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, this is really interesting, like just the kind of the correlation of just like the titles of, of the pieces and then what's actually happening. I was like, um, so we started dancing and, you know, I'm like on the ground here and Deb's up here, and we're doing like all this amazing like, um, you know, lifts and all these kind of things, like really serious stuff. But at the same time, as soon as we started, we're like, oh, it's time to do some reflecting. Maybe we can reflect on what had just happened. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's interesting. As a performer, you, um, you know, it's always, you're always seen as like just serious, but like behind the scenes, like we're just kind of like, like anybody really. But um, I thought tonight it could be a good opportunity for me to just kind of just talk about something that I actually find quite funny. <laughs> um, 
I mean, even just farting, I think, is hilarious. Like, just the sound of it. Who, who likes farting? Anybody? No. <laughs> Anybody into shitting yourself? No. <laughs> I'm shitting myself. I'm shitting myself. No. Um, so anyways, um, I'm, not even, I'm supposed to be keeping an eye on the time. So if, if I'm going over time, just... Okay, cool. I've got 10 minutes. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Uh, so <clears throat> we finished the show. Franny comes backstage, and she's like, oh, great show, everybody. But... I'd just like to mention that Scar tonight was really good. Like, it was really on point. Just the character development. Lenny, you were amazing. Like, it just really, like, you know, amped it up. And, and all the dancers were kind of, like, looking at me. And I was just like, yeah, we're definitely feeling a bit Scar tonight, eh? <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it was pretty funny. But, you know, like, I guess um, in life, shit, shit does happen. Um, to some, literally. Um, but I guess it's how you can kind of move forward from it and actually deal with it. Usually just go to the toilet and have a shower and clean it up. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need to work on, you know, food. Go back to how my ancient ancestors used to eat because obviously I had no cows back then. And I love chocolate. So I actually did eat quite a lot of chocolate tonight. I was kind of hoping that I could shit myself for this because it would have been really funny. <laughs> So it's a bit of a letdown there, but you know. Um, so um, I have a question. Wait, I just need to have some water first. <clears throat> Actually, this is kind of like the costume that we wore. I had no idea what I was going to wear. I'm like, do I dress up? Do I, I don't know, just, just wear some clothes? Um, maybe something that'll, you know, catch a gunner in case you do a gunner. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm supposed to be drinking this, hold on. Oh. Okay, I have a serious question. <clears throat> Raise your hand. It's dark, so don't be too shame. Raise your hand if you've ever shut yourself. <laughs> you should put your hand up. No. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Um, yeah, I know, you're probably thinking, oh, fuck, that was, that was I think I just swore, sorry. Um, you're probably thinking, oh, that was a bit of a shit story. But um, I've probably shot myself maybe three times after. <laughs> so not that I'm, like, trying to, like, deliberately make it happen. <laughs> I am an Aries, though, so, you know, anything, anything for attention, yes. Over here. No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, yeah. Any Aries? No. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much my story. Um, I... I <laughs> Oh, I just spat, sorry. Now it's all about spitting. Um, but yeah, it didn't occur to me, but um, basically, like, yeah, it actually happened in this building, so. I've got a, like, a bit of, is it post-something trauma, stress? I don't know what it's called, but yeah. <laughs> I get a bit, yeah. So yeah, that's my story, and um, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> and I hope that, you know, you shit yourself soon. <laughs> I'll see you when I'm looking at you. <laughs> the best. <laughs> I keep the brief for queer stories pretty open, and mostly the first thing I say to storytellers is, tell the story you want to tell but are never asked to. And what I love about that is I'll have conversations with the storytellers where someone's like, I've got this thing from my childhood or I've got this thing, you know, about this relationship I had. And then you have a phone call where someone says, oh my God, I want to talk about the time I shat my pants on the opera house stage. 
You're just like soldier books. <laughs> Gravitas. Next up, Cadence Bell is an emerging writer, producer, and director. She's the CEO and co-founder of production company Wayflare Studios, where she unmakes prejudice through entertainment. Katie was the writer-director of The Rainbow Passage, which you may have seen on Network 10, uh, I think last year or earlier this year. What is time anymore? I do not know. Um, as well as the award-winning comedy horror short, Mirror Spider. Katie very much likes burritos and short walks to the fridge. She documents her shenanigans at imisspockets.com. Katie. Gosh, I don't know how I'm going to follow that story. <laughs> I'm going to bring the mood down a little, I think, with a little story called A Tale of Two Kitties. Ghostly gums huddled on the rise. A pair of rosellas fled Skylawn in a flummox of jam red and green. Across the golden plains, wild grasses rippled as a giddy wind tussled their stalks. Dad was chopping a log nearby, my brothers were out gathering melons. The back of the ute was filled with paddy melons we'd plucked from the field. If you don't know what they are, paddy melons are like a, a small wild melon, sometimes known as a gooseberry cucumber. But don't be fooled into eating one. They taste like an unripe testicle. <laughs> we used them for paddy splatty. It was a vehicle safety game of sorts in which the people riding in the tray of the ute hurled them over the front like a trebuchet and into the driver's path. Now, there was two ways to score in this game. The first one was to run the fucking things over and watch them explode, or to toss some silly bastard out the back with your wild driving. The latter got you the most points. <laughs> this is what it's like growing up in Mudgee. So growing up there in rural Mudgee, I'd known how to drive since I was an embryo. But I was 13 now, I was a teenager, and my body had begun to be betray me. Puberty was setting in, and it was wreaking masculine havoc. I did what was expected of me, and I leaned into the savage testosterone which cursed my veins. It was easier for me to be the son that my parents wanted. I wanted to impress them, and so I did the boy thing. And I never felt closer to my father than when I was killing things in his wake. Suddenly, something ran past the ute. It was a little white ball of fur. Christ, did you see that? Dad said. Was it a rabbit? Don't know, he said, skulking after it. He hopped a fence and bent to look under an old corrugated sheep shelter. Cloud shadow inked across the dusty ground, shifting Dad from light to muted and back again. He crouched, studying into the void. Get the guns, get the guns. What, what is it? It's a cat. It's a feral cat. He remained crouched, staring it down, keeping it cornered. I fetched a pair of brown 22 rifles from the cab took them from their holsters. I grabbed a box of bullets. They jangled in my clutch. I kept the rifles aimed at the ground as I carried them, as Dad had taught me. Never fire above a ridge, never fire across a road. Always point your gun at the dirt. 
I passed out a rifle over the fence. He put a bullet in the chamber and he cocked it. Where is it? Up in the back corner, he said, never taking his eye off it. I think there's more than one. They're just cats. No, they're feral cats, mate. They kill the native animals. We could take them home. Your mother would murder me if you brought another bloody cat home. And besides, you can't keep these. They're pests. But do we have to kill them? It's the law. If you have a gun in the bush and you come across a feral cat, you have to shoot it. There was a scratching sound at the back of the sheep pen. Suddenly a white ball escaped beneath the tin and took off into the gums. Christ, one of them's broken away. Quick, you go after that one, I'll go after the, the mother. The mother? Go, mate, go on, fuck you, go! I ran. The rifle stayed pointed downward, swinging with the rhythm of my stride. Cloud shadow enveloped the steep and plunged my path into gloom, and ahead of me I saw it. It was baffled, unsure, unsure of which way to run. It turned towards the edge of the trees. It changed its mind. It ran back and it jumped onto a trunk. It was tiny. It was no bigger than a can of Coke. It was so soft, this ball of white fluff, marbled in gray patches and chalked with red dust. It clung to the trunk of the tree, desperately scrambling upwards its tiny paws imbecilic to its pursuit. I caught up to it. It reached its zenith. It had gone as far as it could. It was level with my chest. It looked back and around and it meowed, crying, frozen and stuck. The sun came back out and the kitten squinted against the glare. In the distance, I heard Dad's rifle snap. The sound bounced around the valley strong. A startled flock of cockatoos took off, screeching their protest. I loaded the chamber. I raised the rifle. I placed the muzzle to the back of its tiny, fluffy head. I walked back to the ute, rifle in arm, a master of life and death. The muzzle was pointed to the ground. My eyes were pointed to the ground. Dad was sitting in the cab, his ear cocked, scanning the radio. It fitted and fizzled between grainy voices. I put my arm on the roof with a heavy thwomp. I leaned in the window. Dad shushed me. He was focused on the radio. I looked around for the signs of his work but found none. His rifle was sheathed in the back seat. What are you sh... Listen. He landed on a clear signal. A voice sounded out. Despite their best efforts, the surgeons were unable to save her. The vehicle, a Mercedes, struck a support column in the tunnel. Police described the damage as catastrophic. Who are they talking about? Dad responded slowly seeming to find each word antagonistic to the last. It's Princess Diana. I caught the briefest flash, just the briefest flash of grief in the corner of his gaze before he looked away from me. And for a relenting moment, 
He appeared lost. We were silent. Atop the hill near the ghostly gums, the undulating cloud shadow swept across the dash as radio poured gossip onto the afternoon. Three months later, we sat on the floor of my brother's bedroom, my two brothers, mum and I. In the corner of the, mew, the room was Mew, her belly enlarged. Mew was a bitch of a cat. She was like the love child of Ellen Ripley and Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> if rarely she graced you by jumping up onto your lap, by no means were you to touch her. You were simply a chair. <laughs> but something strange can happen to a house cat when she's pregnant. For months, Mui's resolve had softened. She craved affection and warm pats. She was brimming with oxytocin, so lovely that you could have bottled her snot and sold it as MDMA. <laughs> she wanted us there that day. She'd waited. As the first kitten pressed out of her body, I was filled with awe. This tiny, saggy little thing with shuttered eyes and gasping more. Another, another, a litter. We oohed and aahed, and I gave myself a brief parole from my fettered masculinity, and I wept. My mum helped the kittens find their mum's belly, and they nestled in to suck. My mind wandered day back to that day in the paddock, as it still often does. I remind myself of the love I have for cats, of how many of them our family has owned over the years, each one of them strange and greatly different, like Brush. He was a cat who could talk. Having picked up on the attention our childish cries would garner, he had learned to scream, Mom, down the hallway. <laughs> Or KK, the licky cat who thought he was a dog. Or Smokey, the shedy chinchilla who had affection only for me. I waxed the angles. I was told to do it. It was expected of me. It was the law. I tell myself that every year in Australia, over a quarter of a billion native birds are killed by feral cats. And during a La Nina, as it is this year, that increases to over 700 million. These are the stats that I tell myself to balance that thing I did. The kittens grew as kittens do and Mew buggered off for good. Having deposited a litter of bobbies for us to raise in her stead, she was adopted by our neighbour Mary in the block behind us. For reasons known only to her catty mind, she adored Mary. Mary would chuck her up on her shoulder and carry her around like a baby. Occasionally, we would find Mew sitting on our back fence, glaring back at us with contempt, showing her claws like switchblades. <laughs> I wandered down into the backyard. My teenage body was heavy upon me now. It cocooned me in a rough, vinegarish trap. I had hair in all the wrong places. I'd come to loathe the cracking baritone of my voice, and I couldn't go swimming without a shirt. Something felt wrong about exposing my chest. Samson followed me down into the yard. A tenacious ginger and white thing, he lifted his tiny paws up high with every step. He was still coming to terms with that sharp feeling upon his pads of spiky grass near taller than he. 
I laid down on the lawn and he caught up to me. With a struggle, he climbed up onto my flat chest. What are you doing, mate? I said, because you have to ask a pet what it's doing when you know what it's doing. It's some kind of a rule. <laughs> he closed his eyes, his little frame rising and falling with my breath. I looked up to the slow drifting clouds, a pair of grass parrots shot across the mudgy sky. Samson purred upon me, a tiny rumble pack against the cadence of my beating heart. He's a bloody good writer. Next up, Omar Saker is an award-winning bisexual Arab-Australian Muslim poet from Western Sydney. His latest book, The Lost Arabs, has been shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, the Queensland Literary Awards, the John Bray Award for Poetry, the Colin Roderick Award, you'd be getting the impression now that the poetry is very good, and the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. You should definitely check it out. Omar Saker. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I'm not going to read a story, uh, partly because I'm a last minute addition to the lineup, uh, and partly because I'm a poet and it's what I prefer to do anyway. Um, but I did want to begin by reflecting a little on how strange it is for me to be here. My mother was born in Tripoli, Lebanon. My father was born in Jehan, in Turkey. And I was born in Liverpool, Western Sydney. Uh, okay, that's never happened before. Nobody cheers for Liverpool. <laughs> um, and I was raised by my auntie and my mother, two single, Arab women who were high school dropouts and had children they didn't know how to care for. Um, and it was, how do, I, how do I even begin to explain to you? Liverpool, okay, so we, would, we lived in Lanier, near Preston's. Liverpool was the city to me, okay? <laughs> and you can fast forward 30 years to now, to the place that I only ever saw on TV. And yes, I'm shortlisted for all of those, those awards, which I haven't won. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's very, very strange for me to be here uh, in a country that I feel is always trying to kill Arabs and Muslims in language as well as deed. And so what I was thinking about backstage is how, how, how is it possible that this nation produced me and also the man who massacred 51 Muslims in Christchurch last year? How is it possible that it produced me 
and also the soldiers who murdered children in Afghanistan just for fun. Just saw two boys on the side of the road and cut their throats and dumped their bodies in a river. And then people act surprised when the report comes out. And I'm not surprised because I would read Andrew Bolt's words every other week or Piers Ackerman or Pauline Hansen or even Peter Dutton, our current Home Affairs Minister in charge of our borders and immigration who four years ago said that letting in Lebanese migrants in the 70s, that's my family, was a mistake. I don't have a tie-in to this, by the back. By the by, it doesn't really relate to the works I'm about to read. I've just, I've been reflecting very much on this lately and I just realize it has very little to do with me and a great deal to do with you, to deal with our society and what it wants to be. So I wasn't sure if I was actually going to come here tonight when Maeve asked me to fill in. Um, but I have a great deal of affection for Maeve and the incredible work she does with queer stories. Um, and I had a couple of people reach out to me over the past week, Arabs and Muslims, who said to me that my writing made their lives a tiny bit easier. And I realized I had this delusion that I was somehow going to be able to stop this nation, change this nation from the kind of murderous entity that it so often is. And I'm done with that illusion now. But I do still want to read my poetry for those people who find that it makes their lives just, a, just, a, just an inch better. And so now, this is going to be the worst segue in history. <laughs> I'm going to read a poem about the ancient queer art of selfies. <laughs> it's called The Golden Hour in Unit Block 10, where I live. Don't look it up. My friends tell me the day's most spectacular band of light occurs at its end, before the bend, the long delve into dusk, and that it hits my bathroom in a burst of glory that is perfect for selfies. I believe them, though I never knew beauty to keep a schedule. I try to fix it in mind, to be ready for its arrival, and I miss it every time finding the ordinariness of the sun's leavings or the dimpled blues of night instead. I try to capture the self, like everyone else, regularly. And when I do, I position the camera just so, the body just so, aiming not for vanity but familiarity, what I recognize as my golden hour. 
I practice my death like this. After doing the laundry, putting all the empty versions of myself out to dry, I take photos of my naked ass, my huge haunches, and fancy I know how to reveal what is hidden. What we hid used to be called intimate, a low cry, an uncle's creeping, how little we had to eat. Now our intimates fight for space on the line. The hill's hoist can carry only so much of our undressing. I resist placing my wife's soft parts here in the sun among nameless men, midnight mementos. I need every morsel of tenderness I've earned, yet still you ask for more. The you is poetry. The you is I. I've fathered several children who do not know me. This nightmare recurs. When the dark is absolute, my love crosses from her side of the bed to mine, burrowing under my body with cold hands and colder feet, drawn across dream to my warm slowing, my gathered hours. She cannot sleep without the pressure, she says. I cannot sleep at all. Alone with my other half, I am a restless moon begging for a man's heel. A band of light made purely to praise another. Backstage, <laughs> I was asked uh, what that last line meant because it has to be interpreted into sign language and she, <laughs> she, can't, <laughs> she has to know what it means. She can't just interpret what I've said. A restless moon begging for a man's heel. I don't know how she did it, I hope she did a great job. <laughs> but basically the meaning is, I was horny and my partner was asleep. <laughs> uh, this poem is called Love Poem for the Honeymoon Phase That Doesn't End. Because I was tired of people telling me that it would end. And it hasn't and it won't. And so this is for Hannah. I look at you and love. Then comes worry around ease and infinity. How can you trust what is unmarked by labor or scarcity? Nor do I need my eyes at all. I think of you and love. This grace others my nights, the way freedom bothers the long imprisoned. There is too much space. Life is endless in its potential terrors. I hear you and love always as an invisible production. Slow heaven, hard at work, asking, when did I learn to value the ache over the song, the sin over the Eden that preceded it? because the struggle to say a name without spitting feels more honest than the soft touch of joy. Or so I imagine in a body made by tragedy, isn't it possible love is easy? Or else that I have worked all my days and sleepless nights for this and nothing else. Isn't it possible we are worthy no matter what? Tell me the truth. No, wait. Tell me what you trust. 
I have one more poem. And I wrote this at the beginning of the year when this phrase came into our lexicon, our shared vocabulary. It's called Diary of a Non-Essential Worker. <laughs> and I think it's particularly out for this space. <laughs> Did you know violins can shake the earth? Such sweet vessels, tiny planetary throats. I was sent an orchestra. They made music a sorrow a soaring that shivered the dirt. I followed the notes to a barbarism. The composer said he created the beautiful hour as a space to think about war. And I heard my mother's name, a dark cascade of her. I saw again the clamor behind her manner, her harrowed glamour. I am claiming all of it now, not as a violence, but as an inevitability, always justifiable, I guess. I don't want to lose her, no matter the bruises. I haven't seen her in weeks. A memory of cherries, a perishable delight. I stay home, she stays home, and with this distance we become old battlefields, able to appreciate our damages without adding to them. How lucky we are to have homes. How likely it is we will lose them. Months ago, we couldn't, we couldn't breathe, and smoky miracles pulverized the sky, our fussy lungs. Everything is a miracle when you are alive. I am learning that against my will. Today, I was sent a pink dwarf kingfisher, a bird thought extinct for over a century, and still, it was someone's job to look for her. Someone waited, camera in hand, for a glimpse of a glorious beak. Outside, I hear the camaraderie of ordinary wings, the chatter of birds we call pests. They don't seem to mind the lockdown. I dare say they are having fun, a lark. I call my landlord, ask for a reprieve, and hear only birdsong. He's having fun. I walk out into the park, where months ago a man was stabbed near to death. I sit on the bench close to the stain his blood left and receive a text reminding me to care about Kashmir and Gaza and our Uyghur brothers and sisters who I never stopped caring about and for whom my care did nothing. Forgive me. I sometimes mistake grief for care. The orchestra follows me under the foliage the violins unrelenting, the world shaken to their curvature, their high-strung demands, as I sift through the scattered lyric of my shattered life to find a way to love a woman, and the birds weave and whirl in the green, laughing at this non-essential work. Thank you, Omar. I have a lot of affection for you and the work you do too. <laughs> oh, what a brilliant and beautiful writer. Please look up and purchase his book, The Lost Arabs, from your local independent bookseller. Um, you'll be in for a treat. 
Um, well, if art and poetry and language is essential to our well-being, so too is food. Our final storyteller today is Sarah Tiong. Um, best known as one of MasterChef Australia's favourite contestants from 2017 and 2010, 2020, Sarah is the successful author of the sensational cookbook, Sweet, Savoury, Spicy, and owner of pop-up market stall, Pork Party, which sounds naughty to me, but sure. <laughs> she basically saved 2020 by flirting with Katy Perry and Melissa Leong on MasterChef. I don't know if I've ever received as many thirsty DMs from queer women from booking somebody as I did when I booked Sarah. <laughs> so no pressure. I'm really thrilled she's with us today, even though I'm a vegetarian. Sarah Tiong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you so much. I am both equally happy and terrified to be standing here to speak to you. Um, one of the most common questions I got asked after MasterChef was, why'd you apply? And without fail, I'd say, I come from a family that loves to cook. I wanted to test my skills and push myself. And it's, it's not untrue, but it's not the whole story. The truth is, every time I spout this rehearsed answer, a certain face pops into my mind and it's the face of my friend, Rio. I met Rio in 2013. We were both in The Hague as part of an international peace and security working group. I was trying to be a very serious person back then. <laughs> I had a 10-year plan, and I felt like I had to tread that straight and narrow path to corporate success. Rio was the opposite. I mean, she was genuinely raised by hippies in the mountains. And her overarching goal was to be a good human. Not just in a philanthropic sense, but to experience everything she could. All the thrill and love and boldness that this world has to offer. And when I think of Rio, I see eyes with green and hazel swirls, kind of like a chocolate and green tea soft serve. I see blushing lips, and an almost sharp ridge the length of her nose. And that loud Californian lilt in her voice, it just made her sound so positive and, and fearless. But the reality is, Rio had actually experienced a lot of fear and chaos and solitude in her life. And she used to say, with every fear she overcame, the world looked a little different. So one day, I asked her, what's the world look like to you now, as I covered her toes in prickly cold sand? It was just the two of us, alone on this beach in The Hague, and it was just before dawn. We'd partied all night, and somehow found ourselves wrapped in a doona together on this beach. We'd ripped this doona off someone's bed back at the house, and she said, it looks pretty good from here. You make my world a little less lonely. And I looked up at her face, and she was staring right at me, and oh my God, it was like out of some sort of stupid Christmas rom-com. <laughs> I felt hot and, 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 and gassy. And I said, I said the only thing I could think of, I think I like you. And she laughed. 
you think or you do? And I panicked, oh, well, well, well do, do, you, do you like me? <laughs> and her eyes twinkled and God damn, those gentle creases at the corner of her eyes as she smiled. Oh no, no, she said, you don't get to hedge your bets. Tell me how you feel. And I couldn't look at her anymore, even though I wanted to. You see, I'd grown up with this idea that making prolonged eye contact with someone was far too confronting, too intimate. And so I stared at my feet, buried in the cold, damp sand, and I just wanted my whole body to sink in its darkness. But all summer, Rio had been encouraging me to reflect on this sort of internal shame, this unnecessary shame. And she wanted me to express myself. I'm scared, I said. And I could feel her watching me, head tilted, daring me to look up at her. And there was this awkward beat. And then she nudged me with her knee and made me look at her. And I stared back at those green tea eyes and maybe it was the sky turning pink and blue, but they seemed so much more golden now. And she leant in. Doing things and saying things you're afraid to makes you brave, she said. And when you feel a little brave, you take on the next scary thing. And then the next. And soon enough, you have so much bravery that you're finally living. My God, she really was raised by hippies. <laughs> and by this stage, we'd made eye contact for a full 27 seconds and my ears were surely on fire. And then she leant all the way in and she kissed my bottom lip and I found that moment of bravery and I leant in, my lips chasing hers. But she'd already backed off. She said it was pretty obvious we liked each other. But she was still in love with someone else back in Chile. She'd promised him that she'd return and work things out. I'm sorry, she said softly as she shuffled closer and put her head on my, on my shoulder and I was crushed. In a matter of days, I'd be returning to a life that I wasn't sure would make me happy. I mean, sure, really solid education, strong family principles and a corporate ladder to climb. It sounded so secure. <laughs> but I was underwhelmed and unsatisfied. Meeting Rio and being instantly drawn to her had triggered some sort of transformation in me. I found this urgent need to pursue the things that made me happy, to be loud, to be passionate, to fill the space that I take up so wholly and to try to impact people's lives. Back on the beach, Rio tried to lighten the mood. She nudged me again. You're such a sap, you're my twin flame. And I laughed, what the, f was a twin flame? <laughs> We were meant to find each other, she explained. As it turned out, while Rio was teaching me to be more bold and expressive and open, I was teaching Rio a few things. She said that I taught her the meaning of home and family 
and that she wanted to reconnect with her own family because of me. Sarah, you've spent the entire summer cooking for everyone, she pointed out. You've taught us about food and culture and shown us a different way of showing love for others. I'm pretty sure food and cooking is what makes you happy. Maybe you could do something with that. And I just stared at her. Give up my career as a lawyer? Pursue my passions? Be happy? Surely my stereotypical Asians would dis Asian parents would disown me. <laughs> Fast forward to 2016. I'd lost touch with Rio, and I'd spent the last three years in a life that was perfectly fine. I was climbing that corporate ladder, but every week and every spare moment, I was cooking. I was cooking elaborate meals, learning about food, experimenting, and on some level, I was still unfulfilled. Late one evening, after a remarkable round of work drinks, <laughs> I found myself back in bed, doom scrolling through Facebook as you do, and an ad popped up, you know, considering all that food research I've been doing. Applications for MasterChef Australia 2017 now open. And my instant thought was, oh shit, yes. <laughs> and I remember, I had to tell my mum about the application a few days later. See, I needed that time to build up that courage. So heart thumping and hopeful, I found her in the kitchen cooking. And I remember saying to her, hey mum, I've applied to MasterChef. Oh, don't worry, I'm not giving up my job as a lawyer, I'm not becoming a chef, but just once, just once, I wanna cook with the best. And if I pass the auditions, we can, we can decide what to do. But if not, I'll just go straight back to work, I promise. And I remember mom turned around to me really slowly, meat cleaver in hand and a very, very disapproving look in her eyes. <laughs> and let's just say, I had to spend the next few months finding and collecting those moments of bravery. I of course did pass those auditions <laughs> and in January 2017 was due in Melbourne to start filming and mom wasn't on board. And that feeling of going against the grain and, and failing expectation, oh, it ate at me, it really messed me up. But I'd collected all of these moments of bravery and felt like I had to see this through, just for the sake of my happiness. And I shit you not, the first day I got to Melbourne, I received, I was an absolute wreck. I received this text message from an unknown number and it says, hi Sarah, it's Rio. I can't believe we haven't spoken for so long. Um, I, I think of you often and I wonder what you're doing. Wherever you are, I hope you're being brave. I'm back in Cali and I'm, and I, I'm back in Cali with my family. We're heading into the mountains. I hope I'll see you soon. Twin flame! <laughs> and of course, I ended up doing the MasterChef thing twice. I mean, it made me happy. <laughs> um, but looking back, applying to MasterChef was, was never about testing my skill. It was about proving that I wasn't limited by the expectations of my parents or culture, 
that I could do something that was fulfilling and fun and extraordinary just for myself. And I guess without experiencing Rio's friendship, I never would have had the bravery to accept and practice the kindness that I owed myself or embrace that growth that comes from overcoming fear. I never would have cooked for, a hundred, for hundreds of people. I never would have written a cookbook. I never would have appeared on telly or shared a little part of my heart and soul with so many people. And I guess it's just like Rio says, doing things and saying things that you're afraid to makes you brave. And once you feel a little brave, you take on the next scary thing. And then the next, and soon enough you have so much bravery, you're finally living. I wish you all a moment of bravery. Someone needs to make that gay Christmas rom-com. Like it needs to happen, I need to see this. That was wonderful. Thank you so much and what a note to end on. Thank you all of you for coming out tonight, for bringing your warmth and energy and fabulous queerness to this big old house. Uh, next week I will start announcing live shows again for 2021. Yeah. Um, make sure you're following Queer Stories on Facebook for event updates. I'm also launching the 2020 series of the Queer Stories podcast, which is a collection of 24 stories that I commissioned from writers during lockdown. Um, please subscribe to Queer Stories wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear that beautiful work. There's some wonderful, wonderful writing in there. Um, thanks to Amanda and Leah for interpreting tonight. Um, to the Opera House team for putting all this together and to Lenny, Liv, Sarah, Katie and Omar for sharing their brilliant, brilliant selves. See you next year.